Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. If I could have you open Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. And this Sunday, I have a message, and the, name, the title of the message is The Purpose of Pentecost, Purpose of Pentecost, and I just want to share with you about the power of God, and um, uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning, and I just pray, Lord, that we would really focus on what your Holy Spirit is doing and desires to do in and through us today, Lord, not just in big things. Some people, it seems, are just sitting around waiting for something big to happen, uh, waiting for a big opportunity to be offered to them and passing up so many little opportunities uh, like we just heard about with ministering in VBS, with uh, working here or there and serving in different areas, Lord. I pray that you would open your word to us and just really reveal to us how your power is manifest in us and how faithfulness in the little things is what causes us to be made rulers over much. I just thank you for the worship that we've had this morning, the words that we've uh, sung before you, Lord, that those words come from our hearts and that you hear those things, Lord. And I do pray that your kingdom authority would flow from your throne unto your own, and that you would empower us with that majesty from on high, with the power that you give, Lord, and that you would empty us of our own power and own strength and fill us up as willing vessels before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the song we sang this morning, Majesty, as it was announced, is an oldie but goodie, and that made me feel like I'm an oldie but goodie because it still feels like a young song to me because I remember when that song first started being sung in church, and I was probably 19 or 20 at, at the time, and I remember who wrote that song, Jack, Jack Hayford, who was a wonderful pastor and a man of God. If any of you remember him, he wrote that, that particular song, but the thing I particularly loved about that song, singing it when I was really young, is I had grown up in a pretty traditional church, and you know, I just did, really did not have I had a complete understanding of salvation and of God's love for me, but I did not have a very strong understanding of righteousness, that I'm in right standing with God, and that God uh, wants to work through me by his Holy Spirit. I had a very strong understanding of a call to go into missions, to take the gospel to the world, to volunteer, to work, to help, but it always seemed to me that I was doing everything I was doing in my own strength, and that there was something really acutely lacking in my life that I could read about in the book of Acts, but I didn't understand how can this Holy Spirit power be in my life. And in those years, as I was beginning to understand that and receive from the Lord, I remember that song in particular, amongst others, but that song in particular, and that line in particular was such a revelation to me that kingdom authority flows from his throne unto his own. 
that his majesty and his authority is all I need. That when he came to the disciples and gave them the Great Commission, before he said go, the first thing he said is all authority has been given unto me. And then he delegates that authority to them and says, you go. That we're not operating in our own authority or in our own power, but in his power. I have some really good news for you this morning, but it's also a, really chal- a real challenge. You know, there are many things happening in our world today, and Jesus said that we should not be alarmed by wars and by rumors of war. We should not be alarmed by hearing about earthquakes and this place or volcanoes and that place. We should not be alarmed by the things that are happening because these are birth pangs, and they have to happen in order for Jesus to come back again. But the good news is that Jesus Christ is coming back again. And you can hear his footsteps. You can hear him moving in the heavens and above us today. And he is coming again. And there are many signs and wonders that he's showing to us that we are missing. And we should be seeing those things. And there are many false signs and wonders that the Antichrist spirit has been empowered with in, in this day, the workings of Satan, as it says in Second Thessalonians. And unfortunately, those things are louder, and we seem to be paying attention to those things when we need to pay attention to what Jesus is doing today. Well, a very simple example, and we, you know, we're as prepared as you can be prepared for a flood. I mean, you, know, you don't know where the water's going to come, if it's going to come, you don't know what's going to happen. But we shift from uh, drought mode where we're begging God to send rain to flood mode where we're begging God to stop sending rain. And we're just in this reaction mode. And that's just a simple example, but we're in this reaction mode instead of in this we are prepared mode and that we are moving together as volunteers in the army of God that we are working with him. So I want to tell you something that Jesus is coming back. He is on the move today and he has gained the victory, and that victory will be completely manifest on this earth. So before it's too late, please get on his side, because there will come a day when it will be too late to get on the right side. So get on his side, volunteer for his army, get involved. When you get a call to be involved in Vacation Bible School, and you say, well, I, I can't. I only have one night free that week. Okay, then Make that one night, I'm going to be involved. I'm going to put some, some free will offering of my time, a free will offering of my money, a free will offering of this or of that. Somehow I want to be involved in what God's doing, and you will see that he will multiply that and bring great blessing to you. So look with me at Acts chapter 1. We're talking about the purpose of Pentecost. We're going to be looking at the power of God. I've already begun to talk about it. In Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 4, it says that... Jesus gathering them, the disciples, together, he commanded them, commanded his disciples, there's 120 of them gathered together, we see over in verse 12, but it says he gathered them together and he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, 
It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And this came about on the day of Pentecost, as you know, in Acts chapter 2. The purpose of this Pentecost is that they would receive power, to receive God's power, to receive that power by the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill God's mission, to fulfill what He has called us to do. Many people, they're looking for the end, but they're not involved in the mission. And the mission is not complete. And if we're look, they're looking for the end. They want to know, is this the time? Is this the moment? And as Jesus says to them, it's not your business to know all the exact moments and the exact times. It's good to keep your eyes on, on the fact that it is coming to an end, that there will be victory in this battle because we have already won the victory in Christ Jesus. But it's not for the soldier to know the general's plans, is it? And it's not for the general to necessarily understand every intricate detail of what the president or his council or somebody, the king, if it's in these olden days, uh, is, it has, has in his mind. But each person is on a need-to-know basis as their rank goes down. <laughs> but the battle is won in the hands and by the, by the hearts of the soldiers who are on the ground, who are in that place. And so we see the power of God is given by His authority. And I'm not telling you that God doesn't want you to know anything because He does want us to know. But He shows us what we need to know for this part of the mission that He's given us on this day. What we need to understand. And if we're not faithful in that little thing, if we say to Him, well, I'm not going to be involved in VBS until you tell me uh, whether it's going to flood or not. I can't sign up for VBS. What if it floods and, and I have to leave town or something like that? You know, we're always thinking in this what if, what if kind of thing instead of saying, well, we don't even know that tomorrow's going to come. But if today he's asking me, and I know this sounds like I'm just preaching so you'll sign up for VBS. Well, if, if, if that's true, then so be it. But, but I'm not. But if, it, but if that's how you get it, then sign up for VBS so you can get more. But, I, you know, we don't know that we're even going to be alive on the earth tomorrow. And if he's asking me today to sign up for VBS, maybe somehow in the whole ultimate will of God, it's not because uh, I'm even going to live until VBS comes, but because he needs me to say yes today. I don't have to figure all that stuff out. All I need to know is what's he asking me to do today. So we don't so look for the end that we are not involved in the current mission, the thing that he's given us uh, today. Now, I want to talk about the word power here for a minute, few minutes, and we're going to look at some other scriptures where we see this word, and I'm probably not going to get through all the verses that you've got in the notes anyway, but, uh, but they're there, so you can look at them. But the word power, it's a pretty well-known word in the Greek. In the Greek, it's the word dynamis, or it can be pronounced dunamis. Usually it is by people, but it should be pronounced dynamis. And uh, it's where we get the word dynamite from, and, and dynamite, and and dynamo, and, you know, all this dino things. It's not dinosaur, though. It's the one with the Y. And um, well, it might be dinosaurs, too. I don't know, but I don't think so. But anyway, uh, the word dynamis, it means power. But I want to explain, you know, do you remember in science class, 
in elementary school, you learned about the difference between potential energy and kinetic energy. Anybody remember that? So, you know, there's potential energy, and I mean, there's potential energy in that chair that's just sitting there. You know, set it on fire, and you'll find the kinetic energy coming out of it. And kinetic energy is when the energy's in motion, changing to another form of energy. Energy itself is never destroyed. The potential energy is when the energy is at rest inside of an object waiting to, to come out. And so dynamis is more like the potential energy, not the kinetic energy. You could actually translate the word dynamis as ability. You shall receive ability. You shall receive potential. You shall receive capacity. And not your capacity, because you've got to receive it. Not your ability, but my ability. And so it is power, but it's strength. It's power. It's ability. It's what I'm able to do. Okay, it's, it, it's not limited then to what I'm able to do in my flesh, but it's only limited to what God's able to do. And since what God's able to do is not limited, it is an unlimited power of God. And he says, you shall receive this power. It has another uh, use, uh, monetary use in the, in the Greek. And we don't really see this in the Bible, but it's used to describe the value of money. What, you know, a dollar bill is worth a dollar. A hundred dollars bill is worth a hundred dollars, right? So that value, that potential that the money has is also referred to as dynamis, what the money can do. So you know that our dollars, for example, today don't have the same dynamis that they had 10 years ago, do they? You can't do as much with the same uh, money that you had 10 years ago. So it's losing its potential. It's losing its ability currently and for all appearances, it's going to keep happening, okay? So in the Latin, don't, just going to give you a few of these things, but in the Latin, uh, this word dynamis, in, which is in the Greek, in the Latin Bible, the Latin translation of the Bible, the, you know, the ancient Latin trans translation of the Bible, it's called the Vulgate. Uh, this word is translated by the Latin word virtus, and virtus is where we get our word virtue. Okay, virtue, virtus in Latin means, and what virtue means in English, but we just don't think of it very much like this because it's kind of got taken on just the moral meaning, that that's a very virtuous person, you know, or something like that. We don't even really use the word virtue hardly anymore, do we? No, but virtue in Latin, virtus, means, uh, means virtue, and it means this in English, it means courage. It means strength. It's an inner fortitude. It's an ability to stand up under fire. It's an ability to go forward in battle. Virtue was actually a military word to describe the heart of a courageous warrior, what a warrior should be. He should be a man of virtue. So this is all included in this idea of you shall receive power. Now, I also want to point out to you that God's power is something you have to receive. You can't make it happen, okay? Jesus said, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on you, you shall receive power. Now, you've heard this term, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or baptism in the Holy Spirit, or baptism with the Holy Spirit. And it's okay to say it in different ways because it's phrased different ways in different parts of the New Testament. But that's what Jesus is talking about here, okay? 
We know that's what he's talking about because he goes on to say that John baptized you with water. That's the baptism for repentance. But there's another baptism that John told you about that I will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there are different baptisms. And nothing about this is supposed to be difficult to understand. If you come on Tuesday evenings or listen to the podcast or something like that, you know that we're going through the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it's talking about the elementary teachings of Christ and that we need to grow up and move on beyond just learning about these elementary teachings of Christ. But you've been in Christ for so long that you should be teachers already, but you're not because you're still spinning your wheels about the elementary things. And one of those elementary teachings of Christ that is mentioned is teachings or doctrines of baptisms, plural. Because there are actually many baptisms in the Bible. But in the New Testament, there are two major baptisms in the life that is designed for every believer. And the first one is the baptism in water, which is the baptism of repentance. And we see this over in John chapter 21. We've already looked at this. When Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And they are born again. When a person is born again, they are born again because the Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside of them. But the scripture is very clear in the New Testament, in all of Paul's teaching, and in many places and throughout the book of Acts, that there is a difference between having the Holy Spirit on the inside and having the Holy Spirit on the outside. Being baptized means that the Holy Spirit is on you. You're wet with the Holy Spirit. You understand? And now this difference is so, um, is so fine that it's not easy to really describe that to people. And it's definitely not easy for you yourself to even understand it. It also says in Hebrews that only the Word of God is sharp enough. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Remember that verse? And it says only the Word of God can divide asunder between soul and spirit. So it, it's not really always easy for me to tell, and, and there's not really any reason, again, it's on a need-to-know basis. There's not really any reason for me to figure out if, that, if that's the Holy Spirit in me or on me or get all worried about all these kind of nitpicky things about it because these are just elementary doctrines of Christ. God wants you to be empowered with His Holy Spirit. Now, some people say, well, I don't want to speak in tongues. I see it in the Bible, but I don't want it. I used to say that too. When I was growing up in my church, I, I was kind of mature in the Bible when I was a kid. And I was actually a kid, and I'd sit there in church and I was tremble, like I was scared. God, you better not have me start speaking in tongues. I don't ever want to speak in tongues. Because I was of the mind that if you spoke in tongues, then it was, you know, kind of like I was a puppet. And God was just going to make me stand up in my seat and start in front of everybody in church. And it was going to be so embarrassing, you know, because I just didn't have any understanding. You know, I didn't have any understanding. That's not how God moves. God doesn't make you do things like you're a puppet. Okay, the spirit moves in in you and he moves on you and the gifts of the spirit are manifest. And and that's a wonderful thing. We'll talk more about that next week if the Lord wills. But but um, in the book of Acts, anyway, we do see over and over again that when someone is baptized in the Holy Spirit, this is evidenced by them speaking in other tongues that there begins this ministry gifts working through them. 
And these gifts have to do with sharing the Word of God with other people. And they are tongues, the interpretation of tongues, and prophecy. I've taught on them before, probably need to teach on them again. They're not something scary. They're something completely normal in the Christian life. You know, Paul said, I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. And he said, but when I'm in church, I'd rather speak five words in English. You know, it wasn't English then, but five words in a language you know than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. So Paul's praying in tongues all the time, according to what he said. And yet nobody ever hears him hardly. He's not showing off about it. It's not some big deal. It's not some scary thing. It's the power of God manifesting in a person to grow spiritually and to be able to understand the Word of God through the interpretation and to prophesy. And prophesy isn't one of these things that means you have to stand up here and take a microphone. You know, we, the, prophesy just means that you bring the Word of God to other people, that you're sharing the Word of God with other people. So I'm not going to spend any time really teaching on those things this morning, but we see that in the book of Acts. What I do want to say is at least open your heart to this. And say, Lord, it's there in the Bible. That means it's for me. And so I want to open my heart. I want you to give me more wisdom, more understanding. I want, I want this in my life. I want all the power of God that you have available for me manifest in my life. Because I want to serve you. So these are elementary baptisms. And we have to receive this. How do you receive something from God? By faith, right? And faith, very basically, is just doing what God tells you to do. You could exchange the word faith to faithfulness. Just faithfully doing what God's telling you to do. And all he's telling them to do is just sit down and wait. Don't run ahead of me and don't get me behind me. Be waiting here in Jerusalem. Get ready because I'm going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. So go with me over to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And if you're following in, in Hebrews on Tuesday evenings, you know that we've been beginning to talk about Melchizedek, and this is the foundational passage for that. But look at Psalm 10. I want to read verses 1 through 4. In Psalm 10, 110, Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what I told you in the beginning of the message. That's happening right now. The Father God is making all the enemies of Jesus his footstool. He's putting them under Jesus' feet. It happened at the cross. It happened in the resurrection. And it will be fully manifest in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's happening right now. So don't be on the enemy side. Get on the Jesus side. Verse 2, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And if you don't know what a scepter is, in case you've never heard that word and you're still in school or something like that, then it's the, that, that thing, that stick that a king is, is holding in, his, in those pictures. It's his ruling rod. That, that he rules with that scepter. So he says, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now look at verse 3. Your people 
will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In the day of your ability. In the day of your strength. In the day of your power. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Jesus said, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The word after designates a period of time. It's already happened. So that means that today, the 21st of May, 2023, is the day of Jesus' power. Okay? Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. You won't have to twist their arm. They will be jumping at the opportunity to sign up to serve in your army. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, they won't have to be drafted. They will come to volunteer. Your youth are to you as the dew. Now, we've had some more experience with dew this year in Yarrington, but we don't usually have very much dew. And, but if you grew up in Oklahoma, like I grew up in Oklahoma, then you know what this means, because every morning you walk out and the ground is soaking wet, and you get wet, and your shoes get wet, and everything's wet, because it's like it rained at night, but it didn't rain, it's called dew. And where it's humid, it's always going to be all over the grass, it's going to be everywhere. So it's, it's talking about this multiplication of God's youth, okay? And I'm going to say, old people, we can go ahead and apply that to ourselves because he renews our youth. But I'm not going to take the, uh, the burden off of the actual youth who are in here today. Because this is talking to you. You are his youth. And he wants you to multiply as, as the dew multiplies. And holy array, in case you don't know what array is, that's what an army wears when it goes out to battle. Okay? You know, today it's all camouflage and everything like that. But back in those days, it were shiny shields and helmets and things you could see from miles away. They go out in their dress uniforms. They go out in holy array from the womb of the dawn while it's still dark. And when the sun comes up, they're like dew on the grass. They're everywhere. His army is gathered together. It says in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now this morning, without talking about Melchizedek at all, we see that Jesus is the ruler, the king. He is the head of this army. They have all appeared, you know, think of one of those Hollywood movies like, like Spartacus or something where you see this army that just covers the entire mountainside, the entire field as far as you can go. He, he is at the head of this army that when the sun comes up, boom, they're already there. Because they showed up on that field of battle at the womb of dawn. They were ready. Why? Because they know this is the day of our Lord's power. And in the day of the Lord's power, what are they thinking? I want to get in on the glory. I don't want to be one of those armchair uh, soldiers sitting at home when there's an opportunity for me to get a medal, when there's an opportunity for me to win a victory. Nobody's thinking about, I'm going to die. You know, people think I'm going to die when they're getting drafted and it's a war they don't want to go to. But this is a picture of a war that you want to go to. You want to be a part of the winning side. You know that the victory is yours, because, not because there's so many of you, but because Jesus is your captain. Because Jesus is at the head of this army. And then it says, 
that not only is he the king, the captain, the ruler, but it says he is a priest. He is the high priest. And this priest leads an army that's called, in 1 Peter chapter 2, a royal priesthood. Do you know this morning that you are a royal priesthood? You are priests who serve the Almighty God. You serve the king. And the ruler over you is a ruling priest. You are warrior priests. You are in right relationship with God. A priest is in right relationship with God. You are in right relationship with God. And God is on your side because you are on his side. So we see that God has a volunteer army. A volunteer army. Go with me over to the book of Ezra. If you don't know where Ezra is, so Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther come after the second chronicles, but before all the Job, Psalm, Proverbs, before the poetry. They're the end of the history, history book section. So the book of Ezra, chapter 8. The book of Ezra in chapter 8. It's this phrase in Psalm 110, where it says, uh, your people will freely volunteer or will volunteer in the day of your power. Uh, in the original Hebrew, it could also be translated as your people are themselves a free will offering in the day of your power. Okay, and there's really, it's translated like volunteer because that's how we say that in English. But, but get this understanding that when you volunteer to serve in the army of the Lord, you're not just volunteering your time, you're not just volunteering your money or something like that, you're volunteering your life, okay? And so you're bringing yourself as a free will offering to the Lord. And doesn't it say that in Romans chapter 12, uh, that, that we, we should offer ourselves up as, as a living sacrifice unto the Lord? So it's in the New Testament too. We're offering ourselves as a free will offering. So let me get, just tell you for a second what a free will offering is in the Scripture. So in the Scripture, there are offerings in the, in the law that were required of people. You know, you're required to give a tithe. Most people think a tithe is a free will offering. It's not. It's, it's a requirement. And so they're required to give a tithe, required to give offerings at certain times. Uh, you know, there's a whole system of offerings they were required to give. None of these offerings were uh, something that would break the bank. None of them were things that people could not do. Uh, you know, all of them were actually quite simple and quite easy for people to do. But then there is something called a free will offering, and that is exactly what it's called. Something God doesn't require from you, but you want to give to God. You just want to do it. And ultimately, in the New Testament, we see that God wants all of our giving, whatever you call it, tithes or, or offerings or whatever you're calling it, He wants that to be free will. He says God loves a cheerful giver. You give not because... The pastor's sitting here whacking you over the head or checking, well, you didn't give your tithe this week. You're in big trouble now, and God's not going to bless you. But you give because you want to give, okay? You give because that comes from, from your heart. And, um, and th that's how God wants all of our offerings to be. And when they are like that, there's always more than enough for everything that God, that God wants us uh, to do. So God, God is requiring that we give our... Our, our lives as a free will offering. We see this really well in the story of David and Goliath, the simple story that everybody knows. David was not sent to the front lines to fight, and nobody wanted him to fight, and he was not required to fight. He was sent to the front lines to bring a picnic lunch to his brothers who were required to fight. 
He's too young. He's not drafted. He doesn't have to fight. And he has responsibilities at home. He's supposed to take care of his father's sheep. The, 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 the men are supposed to go to fight. He's just a boy. Well, I want you to know something. God is separating the men from the boys. And the boys are not the ones you think are boys. David ended up to be the man. And his brothers, the men, ended up to be the boys. Okay, Because they weren't willing to stand before Goliath. But David offered himself as a free will sacrifice to the Lord. A free will offering. He could not not fight. <laughs> He's so zealous for God. He wants to be a part of what God is doing. So he offers himself up as a free will offering. So go with me to Ezra chapter 8. So if you don't know this about Ezra, Ezra is a priest, and he's leading an army. It's a picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And they are going to Jerusalem because their revival is happening in Jerusalem. They've been in captivity for 70 years. And Nehemiah, that's a different book, has already gone back, and they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. Well, the first thing they do is put the temple up, and it's pretty shabby. It's not really a very good temple, they think. But God's pleased with it. They got something started. Now they build up the walls to protect everything from the enemies because there's a lot of enemies. And now Ezra is coming to bring, really, when you read the whole story, he's bringing spiritual revival. Ezra and Nehemiah together, he needs the priests to come together there, and it will bring revival to the nation. So in Ezra chapter 8, and in verse... 21, I'm going to read several verses. Let's read this story together, jump in at this place. So they have permission from the king uh, to, to go, and uh, he's getting, he's getting his, all his people together, and there's a lot of people heading out to Jerusalem. It says, so then I, they come to this river called Ahava, and it says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for us. Our little ones, they have all their kids with them, and all our possessions, they have everything they own in the world is with them. For I was ashamed, listen to this, I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had already said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So the power of God is either going to be disposed towards you, it's going to be on your side, or you're going to be against the power of God. But the power of God is in operation. And then verse 23, So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. This is a powerful scripture in the Old Testament. Because if you know this story, Ezra had favor with the king. And the king had the absolute most powerful army on earth. And if Ezra had asked him for uh, an escort to travel with them, they would have had that escort. And they would have known that we're, our journey is going to be safe. But Ezra says, I can't do that. Because otherwise, we'll think that the king did this for us. And the king will think he did this for us. And God has to get the glory for this. We claimed that God was going to protect us. And now the rubber meets the road. Now God separates the men from the boys. Are we really going to cross that river into enemy territory and actually trust God? Or are we going to do something in our flesh to get an insurance policy just in case it doesn't work? 
We'll ask the king to send somebody with us. And Ezra very boldly says, no, we're going to trust God in faith. We receive God's power by faith. We'll see this in the scripture in a minute, but, but God's power is perfected in our weakness. So we don't get filled with God's power until we empty out our own strength. Think of it like, you know, if you, you've got a cup and it's filled with something, you can add some more to it, some different liquid or Say, you got water and you're adding oil, and the oil is going to sit on top, right? So if you've got the cup 90% full, you're only going to get 10% of the oil. And that, that, the 10% oil is good, too. And churches go on for years with 10% oil, 1% oil. You're just skimming the top with a little bit of oil of the Holy Spirit, you know? But how much better if we got ourselves down to 10% and we got 90% oil? Then maybe we get really start enjoying this. Say, hey, let's just get all the water out. Let's just get all filled with oil. But God's not able to pour out his Holy Spirit on vessels that are already full. If they would have asked for the king's protection, then they're going to lose God's protection. And they're going to make it there. They're all going to be alive, and they'll probably prosper and think God's blessing us. But he won't be blessing them. They'll be having the blessings of their flesh, like Lot has those blessings in Sodom, but it's going to come to an end. Or you live in tents with Abraham, <laughs> a nomadic life and trust in God, and you continue to prosper, and he blesses you in the most difficult of times. So let me read on here, verse 24. It's a little bit of details here, but just listen to this story. So then I set apart 12 of the leading priests. So it's a royal priesthood, okay? It's an army of priests. It's a church. I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and with them, ten of their brothers, like the twelve disciples, right? This is a picture of Jesus and his disciples. And I weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the utensils, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel present there had offered. So even the king, the pagan king, had given them a lot of wealth. Okay? They're not traveling poor. They're traveling with a great deal of wealth here. So listen to what he weighed out. Thus I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver. You remember the parable where Jesus talks about one of the servants being given five talents of silver. A talent of silver is more money than you would make in a year. It's a huge sum of money. Okay? It's, a, it's actually a weight because you know, the, 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 value, the value was designated by the weight of something. So it's this huge weight of silver that you could hardly pick up. And... And it says to them, to these, to these guys, it says that I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver utensils that were worth 100 talents and 100 gold talents and 20 gold bowls worth 1,000 derricks. It's a Persian coins. And two utensils of fine, shiny bronze, precious as gold. Well, I don't know how shiny that was, but if you're calling bronze precious as gold, there must have been some real artisanship going into the work that was on the, these vessels, okay? And I said to them, you are, listen, listen to the words, you are holy to the Lord, and the utensils are holy, and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord God of your fathers. He didn't require it. You wanted to give it. It's your free will offering. But the silver and the gold are the free will offering because you are holy. Because you are the free will offering. 
You are the vessel that lets God fill you up with the power of His Holy Spirit to go forth and to fulfill the Great Commission and to be witnesses for Jesus. VBS is nothing except being witnesses to kids and witnesses to one another as we join together as a family to minister. You are the free will offering. And so all this gold, silver, and all this fancy stuff is a free will offering also. Read on. So he says in verse 29, Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leading priests, the Levites and the heads of the fathers' households of Israel at Jerusalem, in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites accepted the weighed out silver and gold and the utensils to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Now you're getting ready to set out on a journey. You don't have any cops with you. You don't have anything but robbers. You don't have the king's guard. You're not trained in battle. You've been slaves basically for 70 years. You know, if you've got a few weapons, they're just a few weapons. You're not ready to meet the enemy in battle physically, but they are ready spiritually. They're getting ready to cross this river with so much money that every robber, it's like those cowboy movies, you know, where they find out about the train that's full of gold or something. Every robber in the whole country is competing to attack them, to fall on them, and steal all this stuff for them. And you're these two guys, and you're priests, and you say, we'll do it. We'll take the responsibility on. It's a huge responsibility. And Ezra trusts them with this responsibility. And, you know, th- this, these, this wealth would be on carts being pulled by, by donkeys or horses or something. This is very heavy stuff. And they are willing to accept this responsibility. And he tells them, now, when you get to Jerusalem, this is, you know, uh, you're going to have to turn this over to the hands of the Levites there in the temple. And don't worry if some of it's missing. We understand if you need to buy some gum or ice cream on the way, you know, or if you lose a little bit of it, it's okay. No, he doesn't say that to him, does he? He says, this is huge. When you get there, it's going to be counted out, every ounce of it, and every head of the, of the household, every dad in town is going to be there to make sure that you didn't pilfer one cent of this money. And they're like, yes, sir, we're going to get all of this into the house of God. This wasn't one of those shady, uh, I don't know, TV evangelist thing where you just send your money in and you have no idea what happened to it. I'm not talking bad about TV evangelists, but you know, you know what I'm saying, okay? This had to be accounted for. There had to be accounting before the Lord. Why? Well, look in this. In this box, there's money here. Right there, there's money in there. That money, before it got put in that box, there might not have been anything holy about it or not. I don't know. It definitely wasn't holy before it got into your hand, whoever put it in that box. That money might have been involved in a drug deal. That money might have been involved in a crime. That money might have been paid for something illicit. I don't know what it was used for because it's not holy. It's just money. But when it gets into your hands, God says, you are holy, so the gold, the silver, and all the utensils are holy also. So there has to be an accounting for these things. And they are willing to take that upon themselves. So in verse 31, it says, Then we journeyed from the river Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was over us. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit 
comes down upon you. He is over you. He is poured out on you. The hand of our God was over us. That's just the same thing as saying the Holy Spirit came upon us. We were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and all of the ambushes, by the way. And thus we came to Jerusalem and we remained there for three days. Okay? And on the fourth day, the accounting started and everything had to be ready. We hardly had any time to rest up before we had to turn over all the money. And you can go on, you can read the rest of the story, you can read it in Nehemiah. But I want you to understand the only way that they, listen to this, the only way that they were able to avoid the enemy ambushes is because they waited on God's power. The enemy has ambushes set for this church, ambushes set for our lives. And if you think hiding away or doing something sneaky or trying to do everything in our own flesh, um, you know, I'm not, I, I, maybe I shouldn't say this, maybe the, their motivation is just perfectly clear. I don't know who does anything. But I'm driving into town today and I can't believe it. That section there with the homes where Rika lives, where's Rika? Are you, there's Rika. And Gordon and Shelley are over there, right? Well, there's this big wall built between them and the colony now. And I'm like, well, that, if, if, that's not very nice. I mean, <laughs> maybe you put the wall on the other side of them. Maybe put that wall on the river itself. I don't know. But, but what I'm saying is if you think that you can build up a big wall of protection around your house and that the enemy won't come in like a flood, he's going to come in like a flood anyway. He will find a way around. One of the neighbors here at the church was talking to us about doing some things to make this ditch more and everything last week. He said something really good. He said, I was here in 97. One thing I can tell you, the water is going to go where it wants to go. And you just got to be prepared. Well, the enemy comes in like a flood, the scripture says. But what does it say about that? The Lord raises up a standard against him. That does not mean that he doesn't come in like a flood. It means that you are his soldier dressed in holy array, and you raise up his standard against him. It's talking about battle. Why are we so afraid of the battle? Let's embrace the battle. Let's join as volunteers. Let's volunteer because this is the day of his power. I mean, I get it if you didn't want to be drafted and sent to Vietnam. I would get it if you don't want to go over to Ukraine and fight right now. But I don't get why we don't want to be in the Lord's army. Because he's winning this battle, and I want to share in some of the glory. I don't want to be the guy that's sitting at home and on his rocking chair and didn't get a medal. You know, if he's passing out medals, I want to get a medal. I want to have a crown that I can cast before his feet. Doesn't it say that we will cast our crowns before him? That the 24 elders are casting their crowns. We've got a whole musical group, Christian group, called Casting Crowns, right? Well, if you don't have a crown, you can't cast a crown. So you've got to get the crown. You've got to win a battle. You've got to join together with Jesus. So here Ezra, this priest, is leading them out. He's bringing revival to them. Now go with me over to Judges chapter 7. These, these are stories you know really well. And I wasn't even going to read all these scriptures. I was going to read some others. But I really felt the Lord impressed me this morning. Just read these because you think you know these stories from Sunday school and then you forget what they actually said. say. But Judges, uh, wait a minute. Oh, I'm in Joshua. That's why it's not working. Judges chapter 7. So everybody remembers Gideon, right? So let's just look at this story, how God separates the men from the boys. 
before I read this, I'm, I'm going to tell you something that was on, I think, Frank's Bible test from his uh, school this last week. Now, that's really good. <laughs> it was the cycles of the judges, the kind of cycles that they would go through. So this, it, as you go through the book of Judges, this is what happens over and over again, exactly according to this cycle. <clears throat> the first stage is idolatry. The people begin to worship false gods. They get involved with idolatry. The second stage is bondage. The people are enslaved. They have to pay taxes to some foreign power that rules over them. It's not the kind of bondage where they're put in prison. They still go about their lives, live their lives, but their whole lives are to serve somebody else. Sounds familiar. The third stage is repentance. Then comes deliverance. And the last stage is rest. They enter into rest. And when they enter into rest, they get more prosperous and they go back to idolatry. It happens over and over again in the book of Judges. And ultimately it happens, as the book of Judges says twice, because there is no king in Israel and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. It's just chaos. But we have a king in Israel and his name is Jesus. We have a shepherd, a chief shepherd over even our local church. His name is Jesus. His name is not Kevin. And when we volunteer and we serve together with him, then we live and we abide in his rest as we're also learning about in Hebrews. So I was looking, I, was listening, I saw that on his test and I was thinking about that. Where are we today? You know, right now in the United States of America, which one of these are we on? Are we at rest? Well, we're definitely not at rest. So bump it up to the next one. Do we have a deliverer? No, we ain't got that. So let's move up to repentance. Are we at repentance? Well, there might be some of it here and there, but not really as a nation. So then we have to move up to bondage and idolatry, and at one of those two places, that's where we are. And we've been stuck there for a generation. God wants to send revival to America, but the enemy has already come in like a flood. If we do not volunteer to stand with the power of the Holy Spirit, then there is no standard to raise up against him. Because Jesus said, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. He didn't say that I'm going to have to come down from heaven every generation and redo it all over again. In fact, this is the opposite in Hebrews. It says that we should not crucify again to ourselves the Lord Jesus. You know, what did Moses get in trouble for? And why did he not get to go into the promised land? Because there was a rock. And God said, speak to the rock and water is going to come out. And he he said, I ain't speaking to the rock. Took a stick and whacked the rock. And water came out of the rock. Why did he whack the rock? Because he was so mad and because he wanted to do everything in his flesh and he was sick of those people and he was going to show them how powerful he was. And he was immediately sorry for it. But God would not let him off the hook because he had to make a public example out of Moses in front of everybody. You cannot strike Jesus again. He was struck once. He was crucified. And you don't think that rock was Jesus. Well, it tells us in the New Testament that that rock was actually a spiritual rock that was following them around in the wilderness. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Well, of course, it was actually materially two different rocks, but there's a spiritual example. Jesus is that rock, and he was following them around. And in the beginning, it was right to strike him because he was crucified. But today, it's foolishness to expect that we should crucify him over and over again. This is the day of his power. He's coming back. And we need to speak to Jesus and walk in his authority 
and walk in the authority of the Holy Spirit with the power of God to be his witnesses. So, Judges chapter 7, okay? And let me just, I'm just going to read a few of the verses, verses 2 through 8. It says, the Lord said to Gideon, but you'd read the whole chapter to refresh yourself with this. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. Now, therefore, come proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Well, Tanya spoke the words of Joshua this morning. You know, if you're going to follow other gods, follow other gods. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I believe that God is speaking this in Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship today and in churches all across America today. If you are afraid and trembling, stay at home and watch it online because there's already too many people in the church. Well, that's weird. I thought God wanted to uh, make the church bigger. Well, sometimes, yes. Apparently, sometimes he doesn't care about how many people. He cares about how many hearts are there. And so he says, if you're afraid, and can you imagine that 22,000 of them went home? Well, if you'll read the whole story, you'll know why they were afraid. They had a reason to be afraid. Because it says the army, later on it's going to say, and we're not going to read this, but the army of Midian were like, locusts like grasshoppers on the land and they had chariots innumerable that could not be counted so 32,000 guys that don't know how to fight that's not very many people is it so 22,000 of them went home because they were afraid and they were trembling and there was no judgment on them just God says I'm, I'm putting together an army and I can't have people that are afraid and people that are trembling before the before the enemy so 10,000 people remain. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Therefore, it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So before I read on, notice the criteria is what God says to Gideon. We get confused with the story because we don't read it and we think the criteria is how they drink the water. It's not. The criteria is what I say to you. And he had to say this in the beginning because God knows there's only going to be 300 left. And Gideon is not going to like that plan because Gideon's the guy that puts out the fleeces for God. Remember, if you read this whole story, he's, he's just really nervous about following God. Okay, and I'll talk about that in just a second. But he does it. So this one shall not go. So verse 5, so he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go home, each man to his own home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions, etc. He's got 300 men. Okay, so God says to him, just try to think of this. It's a really cool story. God says to him, I'm going to tell you at the end of this test who gets sent home and who stays. Okay. God does not say to him ahead of time that the water lappers, they stay. Okay. So the difference in these two things, most of you guys, people know this, you know, but if somebody was lapping the water, that meant that they would have crouched down, they would have scooped the water up into their hands and lapped the water. Okay. And if somebody was bending down to the water like a dog, then his face is in the water, right? And they're really thirsty, and this is really clean water, and most people, uh, all of them, don't have very clean hands. 
most of them are going just going to get down and drink out of the water, okay? But some of them are going to take it in their hands and, and lick it up like this, okay? So what's a dog doing when it's drinking? You know, if you come up to a dog when it's drinking, you can't surprise the dog. It knows that you're there. A dog knows what's going on around it. A dog's always aware of all those things going on around it all the time. So we see the difference between these two groups of people, the 9,700 and the 300. The 9,700, they are not afraid to go to battle, but their lack of fear has something to do with their stupidity. They don't really understand what they're going into. They're just probably along, they're not afraid to go to battle, but who knows why they're not afraid. What they are not is prepared to go to battle. Because if you're facing an army like that, you better not put your face into the water for a second. Because there are ambushes on the road. And an ambush is called an ambush because it happens when you least expect it, right? So you have to be 100% always ready for the ambush. And then when the ambushes never come for 10 years, somebody says, well, what are you always ready for? There's never an ambush. You know there's never an ambush because I'm always ready. But as soon as I stop being ready, there's going to be an ambush, okay? So you're always ready at all times. So there were only 300 people that were actually ready. And I kind of think Gideon, when you read the whole story, was probably really had his fingers crossed, really hoping that God was going to vote on the side of courteous politeness and let him have 9,700. But no, God voted on the side of rugged courage and gave him only 300. And so he says, all right. 300, and I'm not going to read the rest of it. You read the rest of it. You know, they didn't go to a battle with big weapons. They went to battle with torches. <laughs> it was like, you know, the pitchfork army coming to overthrow the king kind of thing. And the people they're fighting, they've got the equivalent of tanks and nuclear weapons. And they're, but they're going to this battle. Now, I want to say something to you about Gideon. There's a real, real lesson to be learned about Gideon for us. And it's a lesson of what courage is what is virtue what is god's power because if you'll read the life of gideon gideon is always scared he's afraid always he does not take god at his word immediately he has to check with fleeces and make sure this is really what you want god and when god picks him and comes to him he says god i'm the smallest person in the smallest family and the smallest tribe in Israel that's under the boot of the Midianites. What in the world are you picking me for? I'm no good for anything. And Gideon never has that bravado that we associate with courage. Even after this story, if you read on in this chapter, God says to him, now Gideon, I know you're, you're, you're scared. You only got 300 guys. So I want you to sneak down to the Midian camp tonight and listen to what I'm going to tell you. But I know you're too scared to sneak down to the Midian camp, so take your servant with you also. And Gideon's like, oh, thank you. So he sneaks down there together with his servant, and he gets down there, and he finds out that the Midianites have wet their pants out of fear already. They're down there telling dreams that they've had about the sword of Gideon coming down upon us and destroying us. And Gideon hears them, wow, the enemy's actually afraid of me. Because God has struck fear into the enemy army. And only then does he have what we would call courage. So courage, as it turns out, doesn't have anything to do with bravado 
It doesn't have anything to do with muscles. It doesn't have anything to do with true grit on your face, you know, or, or pistols in your hand. It has everything and only to do with being willing to say yes to God because that's the one thing Gideon is. He's always willing to say, yeah, I'll do it, God. I ain't ready for it, but I'm going to do it. It's David. It's Gideon. Over and over again, it's even Samson. I know you think Samson, because it's our cartoon image of him, you know, is like Schwarzenegger walking around. The Bible actually doesn't say that. He just looks like a normal guy. I'm sure he's muscular. He's got really cool dreadlocks because he had really long hair and all that stuff. But, but the Bible says that that power was something that would come on him. The Holy Spirit would come on him. He didn't just have that power all the time. He had that power when the Holy Spirit came upon him. The big thing about Samson is no matter how much he messed things up, he was always willing, even in his death, to do what God asked him to do. That's just what faith is. And Jesus said, you shall receive power. You shall receive power. John the Baptist said, in John 3, 27 through 30, he said about Jesus, and remember John the Baptist was the most popular preacher of the day, he said, he must increase, he must increase, but I must decrease. Somebody in our church, I won't say this person's name because they actually didn't ask me to tell this, but somebody in this church told me about something that the Lord had shown to this person not that long ago, and it was this vessel pouring like out blessings on the church or pouring something out on the church. They could tell it themselves when they're ready to tell it, but pouring this out on the church. And I, I just want you to see this picture. God is pouring this out, but if we're filled up to the top, it's just all spilling over. He's pouring this out. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But we have to be the empty vessels. We have to be the ones like Gideon, like Ezra, like David, like Paul, who say, when I am weak, then I am strong. Like John, who say, he must increase, and in order that he does increase, I must decrease. So Paul, you know, had a thorn in the flesh. You know, he was persecuted everywhere he went. It was, it was really, really not an easy life for Paul. We think signs and wonders are so awesome. But signs and wonders in the book of Acts, when they're really from God, they do nothing but bring more satanic attack against the church and, and bring more opposition from the enemy, okay? They did nothing but cause trouble for Paul. So we don't embrace signs and wonders because we think that that's just really fun. We embrace signs and wonders because that's a part of the battle of raising up that standard against the enemy who has come in like a flood. The signs that show people the power of God. You know, the biggest sign and the biggest wonder is you yourself. What was it said about Jesus when he was a little baby and they brought him to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord and Simeon came up and you know, I talked about this verse last week and he says to Mary, you know, that a sword will pierce your heart also. But the verse right before that, he said, this child has been born as a sign, a sign to be opposed by many people, and he is for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship has been set here as a sign, not just to this community, but to this world. And a sign is something that is opposed by people that don't want to go where it's going. Okay, Every speed limit sign on the road, 
you know if there was no such thing as highway patrol and if you were certain they weren't there, you are in opposition to that sign because it's telling you not to do something that you want to do, okay? And when there's opposition to the Lord, then there's going to be opposition to his sign. But the sign also serves for the rise of many, for those children, for those people that are hungry and thirsty after righteousness and they're seeking for the Lord. They should be able to see on this church. It even says in our vision statement that we would actually have on our shelves what we're advertising in the window. I like that statement. I didn't write it, but I like that statement. That it would actually be here what we're advertising in the window. Well, maybe we need to start advertising things in the window that we actually have. The, the power of God in manifestation. The signs and the wonders. The power for a person to be saved, for a person to be healed, for their life to be changed. That you can actually come in here and your life will be changed. So Paul cried out to God, take this thing away from me. And God said, no. My grace is enough for you. And Paul said, well, okay. Because the Lord Jesus told him that in your weakness, when you're decreased, my strength is perfected. And so then Paul makes this statement, when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm just going to look at one more passage of Scripture. It's Philippians chapter 4. There's more in your notes that you can look yourself. But in Philippians chapter 4, it says in verse 11, verse 11, Philippians 4, uh, Paul says, uh, not that I speak from want, that means because I don't, you know, have enough, uh, uh, for I have learned, he's talking about taking up an offering and different things and, and to the Philippians, and he says, I'm, you know, I'm not asking you to give a free will offering because I need it, and I, I would say it, you know, uh, I'm not preaching this because we can't do VBS without you. I mean, it's nice to say we can't do VBS without you, but really we can't do VBS without Jesus. And uh, if you want to be a part of VBS, then you're getting in on the winning side. You're getting a blessing out of it. So you're lucky you get invited to be a part of VBS. We all are. Lucky's not a very good Bible word, but it's one we understand. It's a blessing for us. So he says, I not speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So listen to what he says. He says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. You know, he says, I know how to live in a mansion where everything's paid for, and I know how to, how to get through when my house is completely flooded. I've been through it all, and I know the secret of this contentment. He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then he tells us a secret, and it's not food stamps. It's not welfare. You know, I'm preaching against welfare and food stamps. But, you know, there's this balance where you're asking the king for your protection or you're trusting God, and you grow by faith. He says, here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. So, the word strengthen is the verb form of this same word we saw of power, dynamis. I can do all things through him who empowers me, literally. 
And how does he empower me? The other verses that are in your notes, you'll see the same thing. How does he empower me? By his Holy Spirit from on high. So I know the secret of contentment. I know how to stand in battle. I know how to have the victory in every area of my life. And, that's, and this is coming from a guy that suffered more than any of us will ever suffer. Okay, I mean, Paul probably wishes he had a house to get flooded. He's just on the road everywhere he goes all his life, and he has nothing. Okay, He knows the secret. And the secret is that I can do all things. We don't like to say that. We like to say, well, it's not me, it's Jesus. No, it's okay. Say it. It's me. I can do all things. Because I've been emptied, and I'm filled up with the power of God. And I'm ready to volunteer freely because this is the day of his power. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So there's a really interesting word here. And we actually have it in English, but it's probably not a word you've heard very much unless you study economics in college or something. But this word content, uh, in, in the Greek, it's only used one time in the New Testament. And it's right here. It's, it's a word it, it, in the Greek, it's autarkis, but we actually have an English word that comes from this word. It's called autarky. And autarky in economics, if you studied economics, that is self-sufficiency, independence, and sovereignty of a nation. It's when a nation does not have a global economy and at Hobby Lobby, not everything's made in China. Okay? It's when the nation takes care of itself. Okay? And it has very little to do with resources and very much to do with politics, okay? Because you know, as well as I know, that every resource the United States needs for 350 million people or however many people we have to live today is here already. And there's enough to export in abundance, and there's enough to give and feed and care for people and all kinds of things. It's all here, you know, but we're just not using it because we've created this whole global thing that makes a few people rich and most people poor. And I'm not getting into the politics of it. I want you to see this in your Christian life, that God wants us to have this autarky, where we are sovereign as Christians. We are independent. It doesn't mean we're not dependent on Him. It means we're not dependent on this world for our happiness, for our peace, for our contentment. It's not depending on whether the river goes over the banks or not. It's not depending on anything else except what the will of God is. I can do all things through Christ, through Him who empowers me with His Holy Spirit. And so it's a, it's a, a righteous, not a prideful, but a righteous self-sufficiency, independence, and sovereignty when we are actually able to do something. Do you believe that Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship is actually able to do something besides spin, it, spin its wheels in the mud and just keep going around the same things over and over again? I do, or I promise you, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't. Because on the day when I think that this church is just dead, I don't want to be a part of a sinking ship. I really don't. I mean, I'm not going to sing that Neil Diamond song, you know, that if, if you're the captain of a, how's that go? If you're the captain of a shipwreck, I'll be first mate to your shame. No, I won't. I want to be with Jesus, okay? I want to see victory. I don't want to see the ship go down, okay? 
And Jesus has that plan for us, that he would raise us up as a volunteer army and that we go forward and raise up a standard against the flood of the enemy. Our school needs this church across the street to, st to raise up a standard because the school is flooded, flooded with the enemy today. Our community is under enemy water already, flooded with enemies. And the church has to stay, stand up as a standard. I know our buildings are old, and we've got that old-fashioned cross steeple thing out there, and it doesn't look like one of those cool California churches. I kind of like it, actually. By the way, walk around this building and the office building. Some, someday just do an excursion and look at the really cool stones that are set in, into the bricks. It, it like makes me think of, of the city of God a little bit <laughs> and the heavenly Jerusalem. You know. but, but no matter how old the building is, we're not old. We're not old. And God still needs this church and this community today and I believe needs us more today than he's ever needed us before. And this church and this community is a church with a call to reach the gospel, reach the entire world with the gospel. And so there's plenty of work to do. And it is the Davis power, so volunteer, because you're his people. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, I just thank you for the, what you've given us at Pentecost. And this has already happened 2,000 years ago. So this is the day of your power. I pray, Lord, that every person in this church would be baptized in the Holy Spirit, that there would be gifts of the Spirit manifest in their lives, that we would hunger and thirst after your righteousness, that we would have the power to be your witnesses in this community and around the world, Lord, that we would realize that it's not something we can do of our own flesh, that it's okay if we're scaredy cats like Gideon, as long as we just say yes to you. It's okay if we're poor like Gideon, as long as we just say yes to you. Yes. It's okay if we're too young and too inexperienced like David. None of these things. We might. It's okay if we have a super education like Paul did. It's okay no matter where we've been put in this life, Lord. You want to use us. You've given us these talents, but we have to surrender them to you and say, Holy Spirit, fall on me. Holy Spirit, fill me. The Bible says that we should be being filled with the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. Lord, refresh us. Pour out your Spirit again on this church, Lord, I pray. I pray that it not come because I'm standing here stretching out my hands or laying them on people even. It comes that way sometimes, and we see that in the New Testament. But Lord, I really think we need a house of Cornelius experience here where Peter didn't even get around to the water baptism yet before you poured out your spirit on everyone in that house and they begin to speak with new tongues and to prophesy, Lord. This needs to be, Lord, we're just at a time when it cannot be tied to one person or personality. Only to you, Jesus. This is a day of your power. It's probably not the day of power for all our denominations and churches in America. It's probably the day of our weakness, but maybe that's our final chance to get in on the day of your power, Lord. And I pray that you would pour out your spirit on churches all across America, but I especially ask you for this church, Lord. I pray that you would pour out your spirit on this Vacation Bible School. 
I pray that this would be a spout where the power and the glory comes out, and we better get over there and get under it, Lord, and be a part of it, Lord. I pray that you'd pour out your glory on these youth as they travel on this trip, Lord. I pray that they would get way more than they expect, Lord, that it would go over and beyond all that they could ask or think, Lord. I pray that they would meet you, Lord, on this trip because they simply were willing to say, yes, I'll go. Lord, I just pray for your blessings on every family in our church, the blessings of your power and your Holy Spirit. And I ask for this now in Jesus' We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvinionfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.